What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Hello, friends and enemies, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Evil where we bring you stories of the wild and wicked, lesser-known serial killers, and some of our stories have a paranormal twist. Don't forget to subscribe and give Exploring Evil a 5-star rating. If you have a case suggestion, you can email the show at exploringevil at gmail.com. Kirsten in Plainfield, Connecticut suggested serial killer Michael Bruce Ross a.k.a. the Roadside Strangler, a.k.a. the Eggman. The Eggman. I'll have to look into that one. Let me know what you think. And don't forget to tell all of your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil. If you want paranormal, I've got you covered. Check out Cryptique, which is available everywhere you find Exploring Evil. And my co-host Ryan and I cover the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, folklore, and even conspiracy theories. Buckle up, because tonight's show has a few twists and turns. A brutal double murder, an attempted cover-up, and some truly bizarre family dynamics. And the reason for the murders may lie somewhere deep below the surface, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Tonight, on Exploring Evil, we cover the case of Mark and D. Stepp. Stillwater, Oklahoma, June 8, 1988. A humid morning in America's heartland. An eerie stillness settles into a quiet suburban neighborhood, but that stillness would soon turn to chaos. Just past six in the morning, Mitzi Wynn was awoken by a loud banging on her front door. She found her neighbor, Francine Stepp, hysterically crying. Mitzi had trouble understanding her through the screams. She looked terrified as she was shouting that her parents had been murdered. Police walk into the suburban home of the Stepp family to the site of a grisly double murder the likes of which they had never seen in their quiet community. The house was a bit of a mess, with dishes everywhere and clutter throughout. The family still had dishes out, presumably from supper the night before. Bills were scattered across the kitchen table and countertop. Police described the home as, quote, lived in. Detective Ron Thrasher noticed a phone pulled out of the wall in the kitchen. And as police made their way through the house, they noticed spent 22 caliber shell casings on the floor. Now, of course, that set off alarm bells. Speaking of alarms, an alarm clock buzzing incessantly only added to the anxiety and stress emanating throughout the house. Criminal investigator Mark Shearer says the sound of an alarm clock still triggers flashbacks to the crime scene to this day, not to mention the smell. 
Crime scenes can undoubtedly cause trauma for investigators. Two naked bodies, a tall, dark-haired man on the bed, and a woman lying face down on the floor, wedged between a nightstand and a dresser. Their bodies were riddled with 22 caliber slugs and gaping stab wounds. The woman had a large chef knife, apparently taken from the kitchen of the house, jutting out from her rib cage amidst numerous cuts and stabs. The woman had been gored 18 times. Someone full of rage did this, the police must have thought. The man had eight stab wounds they could see, and what appeared to be a bullet wound to his neck. You can imagine the blood spatter, leaving the room inked with stains and tissue. Police noted no signs of forced entry, and it didn't look like anything of value was missing, like a TV or jewelry box. There were no gunshots reported by the neighbors, but a 22 can be pretty quiet compared to the higher caliber weapons like a 9mm or 357 Magnum. Francine, the step's only child, who had discovered her parents, was checked by EMTs and her vital signs were normal. But police described her emotions as visibly upset and shaken, as I'm sure anyone would be. To the outside observer, the Steps had a picturesque life. They had great jobs with enough money to live a comfortable suburban lifestyle. They had a nice home and a daughter they loved. They had an old pickup truck with a camper on the back. You know, the in-bed camper with a mattress inside that stretched out over the roof of the truck. The Steps loved camping, as we'll soon find out. Mark and Dolores, or Dee as she was known, both served in the Navy. The Steps pulled up roots from Wisconsin in 1979 and chose the predominantly white town of Stillwater, Oklahoma as their new residence. Stillwater, Oklahoma is a relatively quiet town but does boast Oklahoma State University. Go Cowboys! Mark was a successful instrument control technician at OG&E Power Plant in Stillwater. He was responsible for checking gauges, valves, thermostats, etc., and repairing them or replacing them as necessary. Dolores was an accounting supervisor at Oklahoma State University and was described as being a stickler but good at her job. They reportedly coached the OG&D softball team. I couldn't find any information on if they actually played, but they were described as co-coaches. Fun. Friends of the family described Mark as having a go-with-the-flow type outlook. He was easygoing and got along well with others, despite having a few quirks. But Dolores reportedly had a rigid type A personality. But they were also social and fun, according to neighbors. By all accounts, Mark and Dolores were devoted to each other and their beloved daughter, Francine. Francine, too, it seemed, had a promising future and she enrolled at Oklahoma State University soon after graduating high school. But a former classmate, Julie Reed, told the Oxygen Channel that her parents were very controlling of everything she did, who she could be friends with, and where she could go. It seemed that they ran their household more like a military operation when it came to Francine. They were described as strict and overbearing. 
Neighbor Tina Johnson described the couple as having a Yankee attitude, whereas the Okies would just let it all hang out. But as we'll see later, the Steps would sometimes let it all hang out as well. Francine was interviewed by police at 9 a.m. just hours after she found her parents murdered. Francine told detectives she had spent most of the previous day with her close friend, Cindy Wynn, and that they spent the night at Cindy's new apartment. She mentioned she had been home a couple of times on the 7th, and there were no issues with her parents. The second time she came home, they were in their bedroom, but Francine said she heard the toilet flush. She said she came home early that morning and found the front door ajar. She said she knocked on the bedroom door and noticed blood on the handle. Francine said her parents usually have the door locked, but she tried the handle and it was open. Inside was the bloodbath we described earlier, and she ran to her next door neighbor's house for help. After the interview, Francine left with an aunt who had come down from Kansas. After she left, her reported boyfriend, Frank Grout, arrived at the police station, and police wanted to keep Francine and Frank from talking. Police described Frank as a small-town country boy with cowboy boots and a pickup truck. While left alone, a detective said he took business cards and shuffled them like playing cards. They said he constantly contradicted himself during the interview on the most mundane questions like, where do you live? Police were suspicious. Frank claimed that he was home alone all night and then volunteered that he had a 22 rifle. Police collected the rifle from Frank for ballistics testing and released him because they had no probable cause. Just a side note, Kevin Brazil, Mark's co-worker, spoke of a strange encounter with Mark on a company training trip to Tulsa. Mark suggested that after training, they go for a drive and gave seemingly random directions like, let's check this street out, and let's turn down here. Eventually, Mark led the group to a strip club, but acted like they had just happened upon it by accident. When Brazil told Mark that all the men were married and nobody wanted to go, he said Mark acted like he just couldn't understand why. Probably not the best idea to take a company vehicle and park it in the parking lot of a strip club either. Let's take a quick break to get a word from our sponsors. Hello, friends and enemies. I hope you're enjoying tonight's show. I want to tell you about my other podcast. It's called Cryptique. My co-host Ryan and I discuss the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, folklore, conspiracy theories, and even fringe science. Take a walk on the wild side with Cryptique. The truth is out there. Cryptique is available on Google, Spotify, Apple, and of course, Anchor Podcasts, as well as many other platforms. Now back to exploring evil. Francine was described as quiet and kind of a loner by one of her high school classmates. She did not want to talk to her peers. Classmate Julie Reed said she was forced to go home after school every day. If they let her drive her car, she had to drive straight home after school. It sounds to me like they kept her on a short leash. I wonder why. Relegated to staying close to home, Francine spent most of her time with her neighbor and best friend, Cindy Sue Wynn. 
Francine was really nice, really introverted, very quiet. Cindy, on the other hand, was the polar opposite. Cindy had to be the center of attention. Back at the murder scene, police meticulously combed through the house. They found disturbing pictures of the Step family. Police called one of the pictures the Flying W photograph. It was a picture of the Step family, mom, dad, and daughter, all naked. Mark and Dee were standing on either side of Francine, and she was doing a handstand, with each parent holding on to one of her ankles, spreading her legs out. It was hard for police to determine her age in the photo, but they described the photo as being not from too long ago. Who does that? A naked photo with your teenage daughter? I'll tell you who does that. Registered sex offenders. But the steps were not that. By then, police knew this was no ordinary family. They confiscated boxes of videotapes from the step home. The officers scoured the VHS tapes and came upon a tape of a Disney movie. A detective recalled he thought the movie was Dumbo. In the middle of the recording was a clip of Mark and Dee, apparently at a hotel, having sex. Now, if you want to make a sex tape with your wife, be my guest. But it is a little odd that it was hidden in the middle of a Disney movie. Did they just pick a random movie? Or was there a more sinister purpose? Could they have had Francine watch her favorite Disney movie with the sex clip purposefully put in the middle? Who knows, but I find it a tasteless choice. They could have chosen a movie they thought their daughter would never, ever want to watch. Remember how I said the steps would sometimes let it all hang out? Well, Francine was questioned about the pornographic materials and she said her parents were a part of a nudist colony in Hutchison, Kansas, and said they just called it the Hutch. Certainly nothing wrong with being part of a nudist colony, but I don't think anyone would disagree that bringing your teenage daughter along with you is questionable at best. Sure, there's nothing wrong with being nude, but did Francine have any say in the matter? And most would find it disgusting. Remember, Francine had just graduated high school recently and could very well have been a minor in the photograph. Police asked Francine if there had ever been any sexual assault, and she responded, quote, violently with no. Maybe there hadn't been any sexual assault in her mind, but who knows where her head was at, and trauma is often blocked out as a coping mechanism. Police wondered, if you would pose naked with your teenage daughter, especially in the sexually suggestive pose in the Flying W photo, where did you draw the proverbial line? Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Often, victims of sexual assault, especially young victims of repeated sexual assault, become withdrawn, secluded, and are often described as loners. They have trust issues just like Francine. Police pondered possible motives for the murder. Was there swinging going on at this Camp Hutch? Maybe a jealous husband wanted them dead. Maybe someone who didn't think it's kosher to bring your teenage daughter along with you to pose naked at these retreats decided to put a stop to it once 
and for all. Were the steps blackmailing someone with photos they had taken at the nudist colony? All logical questions for investigators. And I'm not saying any of this happened or that there's anything wrong with consenting adults. Keywords, adults and consenting, gathering naked in the woods. But police had a lot to think about. Police were eventually able to talk to the so-called man in charge of the nudist colony, but got no names of any of the participants or the goings-on, if you will. It was a dead end, to be sure. Police were frustrated, but not surprised, and the trail went cold. So police went back to square one, the crime scene. They went back to investigate after the sun had gone down and decided to try seeing if Luminol would reveal any secrets. Just in case you're not familiar with Luminol, it's a substance you spray on surfaces, and with the lights off and UV light applied, unseen blood stains will light up like a Christmas tree. Investigators turned the lights off, sprayed the Luminol under the UV light, and walked backwards from the bedroom door, misting the floor as they went. Eerily, two sets of footprints began to take shape, as though the ghost or ghosts of the murderers were walking out of the bedroom towards the front door. And then one turned and went towards the back door. Now police knew that there were at least two killers. Eventually, detectives spoke with Cindy Wynn to confirm Francine's alibi. She became immediately defensive, raising suspicions. You see, Cindy was eventually kicked out of her home, at which point she moved in with the steps. However, the relationship soured, and the steps had Cindy leave and told Francine she could no longer see her best friend. Cindy had been kicked out of her home because she was dating a black man, and her father allegedly said it was a sin. So Cindy and her boyfriend, Randall Vick, moved into an apartment together. Police knew Vic and briefly considered him as a suspect because they reasoned he may have been mad that he wasn't considered good enough to hang out with the girls. But they quickly dismissed that theory. Cindy gave the police the name Joe Anthony, a former boyfriend of Francine's. According to Cindy, Francine was not allowed to date Joe Anthony because he dressed up in black and wore white face paint and was basically a late 80s version of goth. There's a lot of judgment to go around in Stillwater in 1988. But, when police questioned Anthony, he said he didn't know anyone who would want them dead. They were nice people, and he was sad to hear of their death. Kind words for people who thought you were too weird to date their daughter. Police told Joe that several people gave them his name when asked who would want to hurt the steps. Now, Cindy was the one that told police the steps disapproved of Joe, but he said they were kind to him and not judgmental at all, and he and Francine's relationship had just run its course. Police soon realized that Joe had nothing to do with the murders and had even asked him leading questions to find out if he knew any holdback evidence. Holdback evidence being things not reported on, like how they were killed or where they were in the house police realized that Cindy Wynn was attempting to steer the investigation, notably away from her. 
In her police interview, she became incensed. I'll get an attorney. Fuck it. I'm not playing anymore. I'm fed up. I've had a bad day. Cindy is heard saying on audio of her interview seen on the show Snapped. Cindy did ultimately confirm Francine's alibi, claiming she came over around 9 the previous night. But on June 22nd, a neighbor of the steps contacted police, claiming she had seen Francine driving near their home on the morning of the murder, which is when she was supposed to have been at Cindy's apartment. Investigators questioned Francine and Cindy's friends and classmates. A teen named Michael Reed informed police the girls had told him they wanted to kill their parents. Reed said Cindy's own parents told the steps that Francine shouldn't be hanging out with Cindy because she was, quote, bad news. Cindy said she would take care of Francine's parents to get even with them, Reed later testified. Reed said the girls started asking him about guns, bullets, and silencers, and as he put it, all that good stuff. He said their plan was to come in the front door, shoot her parents, run out the back door, and then Francine would come back in the front door screaming. Reed said the girls approached a local man named Jackie Philip Myers and offered him, quote, a big sum of money to take care of Francine's parents. Police contacted Myers, who confirmed the story, but said he didn't take the offer seriously. Incidentally, a man named James Posey, a friend of the Stepp family, testified that he sold Mark Stepp a semi-automatic 22 pistol. He said Stepp paid him $75 for the gun in late 1979 or early 1980. Detectives questioned Cindy a second time and she cracked under pressure. She said that, like Francine, she had serious problems with her parents. Cindy said she and Francine began to fantasize about life without their parents. Detective Ronald Thrasher said, The original plan, we believe, was that Cindy would kill Francine's parents and then Francine would kill Cindy's parents. Cindy said it was just a fantasy until Francine took matters into her own hands. Investigators, however, didn't think she was telling the whole story. Francine was brought back for questioning and after encouragement from her grandfather, came clean. She claimed her parents' controlling ways had become too much to bear. She said, I just wanted to be myself. I wanted to move away from my parents, but they said that if I moved out, they wouldn't help pay for college. Her parents forbidding Francine's friendship with Cindy was the final straw. When they couldn't find a hitman to kill her parents, they decided to do it themselves. At 2 a.m. on the day of the murders, Francine and Cindy headed into the Steps' home. Francine was holding the gun. Cindy was by her side. Cindy kicks the door open and yells at the parents, and Francine says the gun just started going off. Francine is kind of at a loss as to what happened. She said she remembers a knife, but doesn't remember a lot of details, Thrasher said. Francine said Cindy didn't physically take part in the murder, but helped with the planning and cleanup. The murder weapon was thrown in a local lake, and afterward, they went to Cindy's apartment before Francine returned home. They were going to wait until the heat died down. As soon as the police lost interest, then they would go ahead with killing Cindy's parents. When confronted with Francine's statement, 
Cindy admitted to her involvement but claimed she ran out of the house when Francine started shooting. Investigators, however, knew that was a lie as evidenced by the two sets of footprints. We had forensic evidence to tie her directly to the crime, said former Stillwater Chief of Police Norman McNichol. According to Russ Higby, a polygraph examiner for the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics State Police, Francine failed a polygraph he administered. When he informed her of the polygraph results, she told this story. She told him about the 22 and how her dad put his hand up and the bullet went through and got him first. She started stabbing her mother, and the last time she stabbed her, the knife was in so tight, quote, they couldn't get it out, indicating Cindy must have tried to pull the knife out as well. When he asked her why she did it, she replied, they were practicing nudists, and I hated that. I had to walk around and be on exhibition. It's just horrible. Francine Stepp and Cindy Wynn were arrested and charged with first-degree murder on July 13, 1988. When Francine Stepp appeared in court, she was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. She pleaded guilty to both counts. Based on her plea, the court sentenced Francine Stepp to life in prison. Since being sent to jail, Francine's name has come up for parole in 2003, 2006, and 2009, but she has been denied parole every single time. Francine Stepp remains incarcerated at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center in McLeod, Oklahoma. When Cindy Sue Wynn appeared in court, she pleaded not guilty to the first-degree murder charge. However, through her trial, the jury found her guilty of soliciting for first-degree murder and being an accessory to murder. Based on her conviction, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 1989. After spending a decade in prison, Cindy was released in 1999 and has since then chosen to live a life of privacy. She prefers to stay away from the public sphere and has managed to keep her life under wraps, making her present whereabouts unknown. So what do you think, listener? Did Francine Stepp really brutally murder her parents because they were simply too strict? Did she murder her parents because of a lifetime of trauma and abuse? As I said earlier, a lot of sexual abuse survivors, unfortunately, feel a great deal of shame despite being the victims. They also compartmentalize trauma and sometimes don't remember it at all. We never found out how old Francine was when she was paraded in front of nudists. Was she 18? 16? 10? We never found out how long the steps had been going to the hutch. It certainly seems that this was against her will at any age. In one way or another, the Step family was destroyed from the inside out. That's all I've got for you tonight on Exploring Evil. Shoot me an email at exploringevil at gmail.com and I'll give you a shout out on the show. I'm also taking case suggestions, so if there's something you want to hear about, let me know. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star rating about the show and tell all of your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil. 
And remember, if you want to take a walk on the wild side, check out my paranormal podcast, Cryptique. We've got a show coming up soon about Robert Johnson. Did he make a deal with the devil at the crossroads? Tune in to find out. I'll see you next time on Exploring Evil. Ha, ha, ha.